Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. When a young park ranger was asked by his supervisor to clean out an old barn at Grand Teton National Park in the early 1970s, he discovered a dusty and stained blue, gray, and green poster inviting folks to meet the ranger naturalist at Jenny Lake Museum. This young ranger, Doug Lean, soon discovered that it was one in a series of posters created by the Works Progress Administration to put artists to work and promote visitation to the national parks during the late 1930s. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. This week, the Traveler's Lynn Riddick sits down with Doug to discuss his newly released book documenting his lifelong journey to find the original WPA posters and protect them. Lynn will be back in a minute with Doug to discuss his fascinating odyssey. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. Visit explorermaps.com to find your next adventure. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Today we are going to talk about those colorful vintage National Parks posters from the WPA era that were designed to drum up visitation to the parks after the Depression. My guest is Doug Lean, a foremost authority on these posters, calling in from Seattle, Washington. Doug stumbled upon one more than 50 years ago when he was a young park ranger at Grand Teton National Park. That discovery fueled his lifelong passion and tireless quest for these things. And now he's out with a new book called Ranger of the Lost Art, Rediscovering the WPA Poster Art of Our National Parks. Hi, Doug. Welcome to The Traveler. Hello, Lynn. How are you? I'm great. Great. So when you and I last spoke at length in April of 2020, if anyone would like to go back to listen to them, they were episodes 62 and 63. But you had found and located over the years 12 of the original 14 posters that were designed and printed in the late 1930s. And you were offering a $10,000 reward for the ones you hadn't found. I guess no one had found them. So I was dying to ask you if anyone else had come up with anything to earn the reward. Well, uh, unfortunately, no one has found these last two prints. There were Great Smoky Mountains and Wind Cave. So as yet, I'm still holding on to my money, and uh, the posters are still uh, unknown of color. We don't know what the colors look like. 
Well, we also talked about the Yosemite poster, which one is known, and that's in private ownership, correct? And it was pledged to the National Archives. So no pressure to the owner, but has that made its way to the archives yet? In, indeed it has. Um, the owner was a Baltimore physician, and uh, I had been negotiating with him after learning his identity, which took uh, more than 10 years, uh, negotiating with him to to donate it or purchase it outright, and then I would donate it. And he graciously offered to uh, just donate it himself. So it is now currently in the Harper's Ferry Center collection, along with the other prints right now. Fantastic. So I'm sure you'd probably like to find more of the Yosemite posters, right, though? Well, there's only this is the only one ever found. It's uh, definitely a rarity. It's also a big major park. So if there are any more out there, they're likely to be found in California, the state of California. They were made there and they likely stayed there. But uh, I'd urge everybody to, to look in their attics and their garages wherever they store stuff. Well, that's so funny because um, after you and I talked the first time, I tried to get into the game and I asked a friend who inherited his grandfather's old rural mountain cabin north of Yosemite to scour the basement there and look for an original Yosemite poster, but he didn't find anything. (laughs) Well, he's out (laughs) (laughs) $10,000. Well, let's back up a little bit. And um, I want you to talk a little bit about these posters for those who don't know much about them um, and how they came about. Well, the, the federal art project had a poster division. And it was, of course, in the, in the Depression. It started at, back in New York City at, uh, with Mayor LaGuardia. And he wanted people to get out and go fishing and quit gambling and this kind of thing. And he hired artists to sit in a room and about 30, 40 artists would paint one central poster. And that was the copy machine of the day. So they began this poster project just after the Depression, 1929, 30. And that grew exponentially throughout the United States. And within eight years, they produced 2 million posters from everything from reading books to stay healthy, brush your teeth, visit your national parks. That whole poster effort was part of the WPA and the Federal Art Project. Yeah, that's correct. The the WPA was an alphabet soup of hundreds and hundreds of bureaucracy, some people would call them, but hundreds of, of work Make work projects, everything from art to building buildings, school, track meets, swimming pools, um, trails in their state national parks, buildings. Uh, they built the PWA, part of this new deal, which was parallel to the WPA, built the Department of Interior Building, Hoover Dam. But they also hired artists. They hired circus clowns. Fourteen posters were originally designed, 14 different parks, correct? That's correct. They began in 1938, and by 1941, the World War II came up, and the whole project came to a screeching halt. However, in 1938, the funding to the WPA and the Federal Art Project, part of, this is part of Fed 1, which included the Federal Music Project, the Federal Writers Project, the Federal Theater Project, etc., this all began to collapse. FDR was at his the low point of his career at the time as president, and they, just like today, Congress began cutting drastically the funding for this for this uh, museum project that 
made not only posters, but made these dioramas and maps. So only 14 parks got these prints. And then after the war, they were just completely forgotten about. They were tossed in the dustbin of history, as they say. And it wasn't until 1971 that I found what turned out to be the first poster that uh, you might say resurfaced, at least was identified. And it took me another 20 years until 1992 or three to realize that this is part of a federal series that was made by the WPA and actually come up with some photographs of the original 14. The posters were gone. All that was left were these black and white photographs. They were in a file drawer in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia at the National Park Archives. And how was it that you dug down and found that they were housed there? Well, it was completely serendipitous. I knew they were a government poster. That was really what the Park Service could tell me in Grand Teton, where this first Jenny Lake print turned up in 1971. And it was at the suggestion of Charlene Milligan, who ran the bookstore there, to call the National Archives in Washington, D.C., that I wouldn't find them in the Library of Congress collection, but to call the National Park itself. So I called Tom Durant, who was the archivist, their head archivist, I guess, and... Um, Tom said, it's strange you should call because I have a similar request from Grand Canyon National Park and they have a poster print and they want to make a copy of it. And so I'm digging through the files and coming up with several photographs of different posters. And I said, in these pile of photographs you have, is there one of Grand Teton National Park? And he said, yes. And I asked him to read me the headline on the poster and it says, Meet the Ranger Naturalist at Jenny Lake Museum. So I just, that was the holy grail I was looking for. 14, 13 actually photographs this whole set, including Grand Canyon and Grand Teton and many more. So I immediately caught an airplane out to Washington, drove out to Harper's Ferry, got a speeding ticket on the way and, <laughs> and uh, sat down with Tom and took a look at all of this wonderful uh, view back into history and I knew this was the this would be the information I would need to restore this whole set of posters. And so at that point you weren't aware of anybody else having any of these original posters. Well that was a concern in a way, I guess <laughs> to restore these prints and I I did eventually restore all of them in the original silk screen format. But to put that kind of time and energy and money into this type of project, it would be fruitless to go to all this trouble and then find them in somebody else's uh, file somewhere. You know, maybe somebody's already discovered these and sat on them. And here I'm just paralleling what they've done or maybe what they, uh, the original posters color was missing with these photographs obviously they didn't have color film at the time and so all i possessed was the design in black and white so i had to make up my own colors so if original posters started turning up there were different colorations i i wouldn't i'd be sitting on a pile of worthless paper in different colors i couldn't market it so i did a search around the country i called several people one was uh, krista noon who was the only person had written a book on the the subject, uh, Posters of the WPA. I believe it was published by Wheatley Press at the University of Washington. It's a beautiful book. It's uh, 
now out of print, but available uh, through search engines. But he cataloged what he knew about the WPA print, these WPA posters, based on a discovery they made of 1,700 prints in Maryland, University of Maryland, in a library attic. Just a complete discovery of virtually everything the WPA made. So I called Chris up, and he kind of beat around the bush a bit, not tipping my hand, if you will, that I wanted to restore all these prints. And he he said, well, what? I said I had a WPA print, and I want to get some information on it. And he said, what's the subject of this print? And I said, it's of the National Park. And he said, they didn't make any National Park prints. So here's the author of the book. He was unaware that the National Park Service had commissioned the WPA poster division to produce posters for the budding, growing National Park Service. So I knew I was kind of safe to go ahead with this process, that somebody wasn't sitting on a whole pile of the actual original posters with all the original information, that is the color in my case. So it was it was a little bit of a perilous walk, I guess you might say, to, before I'd spent a, a whole lot of money taking these black and white photographs apart. I had to go through a lot of processes of, first of all, printing these negatives then i had to blow them up to the proper size and i had to trace each grayscale make screens it was a extremely expensive and time-consuming process and i didn't want to take this step until i was certain that that you know there there weren't other posters out there that i could simply just go and photograph and get everything in one fell swoop this this process by the way took me five years and it cost about one hundred fifty thousand dollars paying artists and just the time it took to draw a hundred screens by hand. And it was very difficult because these photographs had eight different grayscales on them and they were all faded. And there was all kinds of problems with the negatives. They were old and scratchy and whatnot. So this was a very laborious effort to get these original 14 prints restored. Right. And that restoration of those original 14 prints really kind of led to the business that you started, uh, Ranger Doug's Enterprises, where you... Uh, we're taking these old posters, uh, the negatives, and creating new original silk screens based on these black and white photographs. Is that correct? And then as you were doing that over the years, more and more of the original posters were uncovered. Yeah, once I started printing these things in in my colorations, and I just made my colors up, I, I did some some homework and used the you know, different photographs and paintings and whatever I could find, period brochures at the parks were very helpful. But when I published my own version of these things, then originals began to show up. People would call me, they'd say, hey, I've got a poster, but it's a different color. What's going on? How come there's two different colored posters? Well, then I knew they had an original. They were also printed on hard board, usually. Well, actually, always they were published on hard board. Mine were roll-up paper. We had to make them rollable, so tourists could purchase them and the original posters were not made to sell they were only made for advertisement so they were made on a hard board they also made a version of them that had a cutout where there was just a big blank space on the poster so the park service could post their evening campfire program and that made them unsaleable they and, and later these originals that turned up with these blank spaces couldn't sell so these are ones that i would grab purchase from the owners and then donate them I'm Lynn Riddick speaking with National Park poster historian Doug Lean, and we'll be right back after this short break. 
listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. I'm Lynn Riddick, back now with Doug Lean. Only 50 to 100 copies of each park poster was produced. Is that correct? And they were handcrafted silk screens and each one done individually, right? Yeah, the silk screen process back in the day, in these days of the 20s and 30s, used silk. It was it broke down just like you'd have a, a I call them nylon stockings, but they were silk stockings of in their day and they would always run and you'd have to throw them away. And it's no different with the artists with their screen printing. They would squeegee the ink through these these silk screens that were lacquered out to direct the printing in certain areas, but that would wear out the silk, the silk would run and that would be the end of it. So they typically get 50 to 100, sometimes maybe 150 prints out of one screen. And then it would, the, the, the screen would be destroyed afterwards. So these prints were made one time. Each each poster, when it was finished, that was the end of the edition. They, they would have to create the whole process from the very, very beginning. The government had a brochure that went out in 1938, in, in August of 38, and in it, it said that, you know, order all the prints you think you're going to need because once we print them, you'll get no more. At the time, those cost only 12 cents a piece. That's what it cost the taxpayers to make these prints. Today, they're worth, they've been appraised at almost $25,000. Per poster? Uh, for an original poster. So you mentioned the archives and you mentioned Harper's Ferry. Where are these posters kept? In those places? Where else? They're the All the original National Park WPA posters are stored in three locations today. In, in the public domain. The first is the Library of Congress. They possess five. They were purchased at auction, the Swan Auction Gallery in New York. Uh, in two minutes, the most expensive poster went for $9,000. Those five are now in the Library of Congress collection. There are two in the Department of the Interior Museum collection. There are two Yellowstone Falls and the Yellowstone Geyser print. Two, two prints. And then there are, I believe, the balance of the 
posters minus the two missing ones are in the Harpers Ferry collection, which is the National Park Archives, and that's in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. So these are all under lock and key. The There are parks that have their own copies. Grand Canyon has, uh, they have three prints right now. And the Petrified Forest print is a singular print that is owned by that park, and it is in the archives in Tucson, Arizona. They have big temperature control vaults. So these are all very safe. They are brought out from time to time for exhibits. In fact, two right now today, as I speak, are in a um, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. They're having a big WPA poster uh, exhibit. I encourage people to attend that. I'm going to be in New York in a couple of weeks, so I'll have to check it out. What is the dimension of these posters? They're 13 and a half inches wide and 19 inches tall. And it took us a while to figure that out. I had the Teton print, of course, but uh, each of the photographs were different ratios of size. And I realized that through this restoration process that took five years, that some posters had different proportions. Well, it turned out to be all camera error and that kind of thing, but I didn't catch that right off the bat. So I started publishing in these oddball sizes, 13 and a half wide was always fixed, but the height would always just fall where it may. And um, so some of the original editions that I did are slightly different size and different colors now that I've corrected the colors. But uh, anyway, today, the, <laughs> the all the posters that I found that are originals are 13 and a half by 19. And they're printed on hard board. And so it bears um, pointing out that you do not keep any of the originals that you found, correct? You've, you've turned over the ones that you found to the Library of Congress for the public domain. Everything that I've possessed or been fortunate enough to find or to purchase is now back in the public domain. And the Library of Congress, I have not donated directly to, um, and I probably use that term a little loosely because it's sort of the umbrella blanket of all the public domain of the library of everything that we've ever printed, whether it's book or art or whatever. Well, it'd be the Library of Congress is uh, a discreet a building government entity, whatever, and has their own collection and their own record keeping and all that. But they lend freely with the Department of Interior Museum. They lend uh, freely with the, the National Park Service. In fact, right now, the two Department of Interior Museum prints are over at the Met and other prints from the Library of Congress are over there. So it's, it's, they're in several different, several different collections. I've had, I've had control, I guess you'd say over 10 of these now. When I say control, I found some, uh, the Grand Teton print. I have purchased several through the Swan Auction Gallery that the Library of Congress also bid against me. And they, of the nine prints that went for sale in 2006, uh, the Library of Congress bought five and I bought two. And then two went at large. One was this Yosemite. And I kicked myself for 19 years for not buying that one. Two I tracked down, took me 19 years involving the FBI to get two that were taken from privately from a fellow that impersonated me. And he found the source of these. It was the artists that made them, his son, Richard Powell. And he got there first and passed himself off as me and ended up taking two prints and all the family photographs. And 
the family said, I want to, we want to donate these prints to the National Park Service. And the fellow said, yeah, I'll do it when I finish studying them. Well, this took 19 years. They disappeared and they were stolen. So I got wind of this and uh, got the FBI involved in it. And after 19 years, the only recourse I had was to get the owner, the, this family, to donate them to me so I could go to court and get them. The family didn't want to go to court. So these were two that I'd never even touched, yet I legally owned them and I could go to court and get them. So we went to court and those two prints today are back in the Harper's Ferry collection. So th these have come from all different corners of the country and in different methods and whatnot. It's been a Grand Teton has three prints, it turns out. They had one that came up from White Sands, New Mexico in a plant press. It was cut up to fit the press. So they cut the an inch or two off the bottom of the print and an inch or two off the side. And that sat in the park archives in a flat file for 40 years. Un nobody knew it was there. And I found it in 19, no, 2006, I think, is when I ran across this one. And it was in the park collection all along, but the park didn't know they owned it. But I've owned two of the Grand Teton prints, and one is donated to the park, back to the park where I found one that was going to the dump, and the other one is in the Harper's Ferry collection. Oh, great. Okay, I wondered what happened to those Grand Teton posters that you had found. So, yeah. you know, you've been doing this, you've been trying to find these posters for a long time. Um, so over the years, had you ever met or spoken to any of the original artists or anyone involved in the poster project? Well, it, it's pretty well determined that the, ex, with the exception of the very first print, and the, which is Grand Teton, that was the first in the series in 1938. And the last one is Bandelier National Monument, was made in 1941, just before Pearl Harbor. Those were made by different artists, and we don't know who they are. However, I suspect that all the rest together were designed by C. Don Powell and Chester Don Powell. He went by C. Don. He um, designed these between 1938 and 1941. And they all have the same Ranger Naturalist Service headline at the top with a couple exceptions. And there's photographs of him making them at his easel. Now, he died in 1964, but his son... Richard Powell, whom I just spoke of, acquired some of his father's collection. And I met Richard Powell, but just months before he died. And uh, his wife, Nancy, is uh, lives now in Tennessee, and I've been in contact with her. So have you ever thought about what might have happened to these posters had there not been a person, um, you, who recognized um, their <laughs> historical significance and and worked toward preserving them as an important cultural collection? Well, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, an unanswered question. I don't know if you, I, I can answer that. I Who, who else would have found them? And I've, I've been obviously pretty obsessed with uh, trying to put all these eggs back in one basket, you know, it's, it defies the law of entropy in a way, but um, you know, it, it these are very tempting to, they're, they're very be beautiful, unique prints. And if you understand the, the, the source that they were made by the WPA artist, WPR today is just uh, almost non-existent because it's been snapped up so fast. It's just, uh, everything is WPA today. There's, dozens of people making these copies now and putting WPA on them. 
but who, yeah, who's to say whether these would end up in, you know, back in garage sales and how many times are they recycled before kids crayon them up? And the one in the plant press came up, cut up because it fit, they needed a piece of cardboard. So it's anybody's guess that there are 40 known prints that have survived out of 1400. So it's a hundred prints on each edition times 14 parks. And these 40 today, I think two thirds of them are in the public domain. The public domain, that's the Library of Congress, the National Park Service, the, the Department of Interior, possess a copy of each one of these. Now, the only ones they don't have are these two that are missing, Wind Cave and Great Smoky. But they do have a complete set of the other 12. And there are other editions. There are 40 now, 40 um, total copies that have been found. So like Bandelier has 13 copies. Now, Bandelier half of those were cut in half to fit in a file drawer divider. They were just paper dividers, but they have five or six, I believe, um, intact ones. So they are ephemeral. They're, they, that's why we, we had only one Yosemite. Who knows where the other 99 went? We have one petrified forest. Who knows where the other 99 went? Fortunately, that one stayed in the park file drawers for 80 years. But um, who's to say where these would be if I hadn't found them? It was a quite serendipitous. The, the original poster I found, the Grand Teton, was in a park cleanup day. It was in a horse barn, stuck up in a, it was wedged up in a beam on a, and the, supporting the structure. And I pulled it down and it was, we were taking everything to the dump to burn. And a, a, a story that's emerged since we last interviewed was that the the WPA, the Western Museum Laboratories, I should say, also built in Grand Teton a diorama. And this was in the Cheney Lake Museum when I was there. In my third year, I came back and it was gone. And I got thinking about this after I learned that these, that the diorama was the source for the design for the Grand Teton poster. So they're both built back in Berkeley. Well, that diorama I called the park up when I started investigating these posters and was told that they couldn't get it out the door when they moved the building. So they took a chainsaw, cut it in half, and it went to the park dump. Hmm. Today, in researching at the San Bruno archives with this decade of records and photographs, hundreds of photographs, I ran across a relief map. These are three-dimensional maps, like you see on Google Earth, but in the round. The largest map ever built, relief map was started by Ansel Hall, who was the head of the chief naturalist at uh, Yosemite, and then later became chief naturalist for the entire park service. And then he was later promoted to the, be the director for the Western Museum Laboratories, where all these museums were made. He was very big on relief maps. And he built uh, two maps, actually, one smaller Yosemite map that has been for 100 years in the visitor center there at the Yosemite Museum. It's a magnificent stone, granite stone and, and log building. And on the wall adjacent to this 12 foot long map were these four panels, 10 foot by 10 foot, so 40 feet by 10 feet high, one entire wall, 250 miles of Sierra mountain front in three dimensions, vertically mounted. And these, for the last 30 years, these have been languishing in an open shed where snow stakes are stored out in the open elements. 
And when I saw the photographs of this map, I immediately called the park. And I said, Where, where's this map that these WP artists made? They're made by the same people that made the posters. And they said they were in this snow shed. So I immediately drove over to Yosemite. It was a two-day trip and found them. And this year, they called me up and said, they're going to the dump. If you want them, get over here. So I went back and worked with the University of California, Merced. And they are now the repository for the documents of the National Park Service in California, the Yosemite, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and so on. And so they were tickled to get these maps, and they're going to repurpose this 40-foot-long map into a building. It's going to be in a museum building yet to be built. But that's how tenuous these, um, these exhibits have become. The smaller map that Ansel Hall made also was headed to the dump, and I grabbed that. That that will be uh, repurposed as a centerpiece for the UC Merced Library Museum. So that'll be back on display here in hopefully a year after it's curated. So anyway, these are other ephemeral objects that are in the public domain. The Park Service does not have the budget to curate them, to store them, and they really do need, along with the posters, these need to be tracked and, and preserved by any means possible. I'm Lynn Riddick speaking with National Park poster historian Doug Lean, and we'll be right back after this short break. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to introduce our upcoming seven-month certificate special set to launch on November 1st, 2023. This limited-time offer features a competitive 5.75% annual percentage yield. It's a great way to make your savings work harder for you. Please note that this special rate is available for new funds only. If you've been exploring options to grow your savings, remember to mark November 1st on your calendar. We're here to help you achieve your financial goals. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, back now with Doug Lean. So going back to the business that you started, I don't know, almost 30 years ago, um, your Ranger Doug's Enterprises, where you reproduce these posters, and you also design posters for many other national parks designed to look like they were part of the original batch. How's the business going? Well, it's uh, fantastic. <laughs> we sell nostalgia with these prints. And since the 14 were reproduced, 
other parks came to me and said, can you make a 15th and a 16th and so on? So we're up to about 60 total designs now, the 14 historic prints. We have added to that two Sea America prints and a Dorothy Waugh print we have for sale, but we're up to about 60 prints, uh, 45 or so, which are contemporary. So they're made today modern computers, but they look identical to the old. They fit in with the style of the original WPA prints. But it's been kind of fun to kind of get inside the artist's heads and figure out what makes a WPA poster a WPA poster, and what what what's so special about these park prints? What why why are they so different than today's modern posters? Well, there's you you could write an I could write another book I guess on this subject alone. It's touched on in my book, but there are certain hallmarks and features that the, that they use. And of course, screen printing is hardly done today at all. Very few people are screen printing in America. So, what are those hallmarks and features? Well, for one, silk screen. Uh, two is the this is C. Don Powell, Chester Powell, used a lot of he used horizontal lines in in a to, to connote uh, distance in his in these vistas, these national park vistas. For instance, uh, I'm looking at one here, Mount Rainier, Lassen Volcanic um, Glacier. You look across the lake and the shorelines, and you get these lines. You see it in the Fort Marion uh, trend along in the waterways to show how f- expansive and how distant the mountains are. So that was that was one of the hallmarks that was, um, you know, pr- probably the one I used the most. Let's put it that way. There's um, another one of is the Bauhaus font, which was came from the Soviet Union back in the 20s when the workers unite and the communists took over in in the in, in Russia. And that made its way through Germany, and it came into the United States. It, there was there were workers' rebellions in the 20s, 30s, and whatnot, and so that font became classic for the posters. And it was adopted by the WPA because it was, of course, in the Depression, people were eager for work. Labor was f- first and foremost. So this Bauhaus font became sort of synonymous with big bold lettering, and and uh, suited very well for the national park posters. So let's talk about the book, Ranger of the Lost Art, Rediscovering the WPA Poster Art of Our National Parks. So how did it come about and how long has it been in the works? Well, it's been in the works from the very beginning, 30 years or more. It's 30 years of research and rediscovery on my end. And of course, everybody says you got to write a book, but there really was not enough information until this recent discovery at the NARA facility in San Bruno. And the impetus to sit down and write was the COVID pandemic. It was a good time to sit home, get on the computer like everybody else, but to put all my thoughts down. So the book began three years ago and I wrote a first draft out and sent it around and uh, got some ho-hum input from various friends of mine that are, that do know how to write books. And then I went to the San Bruno archives and found this, this huge amount of information, this decade of records and photographs. So I tore up the old manuscript and started over. So I actually wrote the book twice, but it's uh, 224 pages. It has over 400 illustrations. It comes with a silkscreen print in the back cover. It's uh, got a marker ribbon. It's hand bound. 
the last bindery in the United States in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Roswell Bindery. It's an absolutely beautiful, high-quality book. It's printed in Salt Lake City in very vibrant colors. I'm very proud of it. It uh, weighs a full five pounds. It'll probably kill small mammals if you if you hit them with it. <laughs> but it's uh, it was a long road to get this book. In fact, it's still en route to my warehouse here in Seattle as I speak, although it's arriving tomorrow at um, at 10 o'clock. Um, but it's 10 pallets, each weighing a ton. We have 5,000 copies for the first edition. It's a hardbound, of course. Best jacket. Uh, Doug Brinkley wrote the forward. He's leading historian, uh, author, histor- historian and author in the United States. Um, Sally Jewell wrote a first endorsement, first edition endorsement, as did John Jarvis, the director of the Park Service, former director. Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan have also written a nice uh, support supportive paragraph. Um, so anyway, it's uh, everything I imagined and how this book could turn out is uh, everything I could have imagined. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the endorsements. Um, they were pretty glowing. Um, the one that you referenced um, from <laughs> Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, you know, of course, documentary writer and producers. Um, they said, now quoting now, we all have Doug Lean to thank for embarking on the long, tireless quest to find more of these posters than recreate them in all their beauty. This book not only displays the results, but also tells the story behind them. This book is a national treasure itself. Wow, that's a great comment, right? Well, you have to say it is. <laughs> and I'm absolutely humbled uh, to have uh, you know, to rub shoulders with these uh, these uh, titans of, uh, of history. I mean, I'm not a writer. I'm not a historian. I'm a dentist. And I think it is a good story. I mean, it's kept me alive for 30 years. It's turned into an obsession. I'm absolutely tickled to get it down on paper. I hope people enjoy it, and I'm sure they will. Yeah, how is the book organized? Okay, so it's it's as Doug Brinkley mentions, it's sort of a hybrid book. It's uh, two books in one. The first half of the book focuses on, of course, the history. I start out with the history of the New Deal, the WPA, and the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. Again, you could write a whole book on, there are many books on the subject already. So they were integral to the story. And then the Western Museum Laboratories. And then I delve into the 14 prints and how they each turned up, where they were found, how they were lost, if if I knew, um, how many surviving copies. So I run a whole chapter on that. And that's probably almost half of the book right there. And then I go into chapters of eight posters as we printed them historically just it's just a simple way to organize so there's the, all the contemporary prints each have a, between two and four pages um, describing how I came up with the designs we have photographs of what I started with sometimes it was a photograph sometimes it was a old park brochure and there's sections in there about the two stolen prints that took 19 years to recover there's uh, a lot of little sidebars and um, there's 400 full color uh, illustrations in the book, which should make it, I think, quite interesting. Doug, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Um, for those who wish to buy a book, they can get one at the National Parks soon. 
but also through your website. How do they find that? Now the website is rangerdug.com. And again, for those who wish to hear uh, my extensive conversation with Doug from April 2020, um, just search for episodes 62 and 63. And Doug, I wish you the best for your new book, and I'm looking forward to looking at a copy of it. And I am going to keep looking for those missing posters. Well, I hope you find them. And if you do, I'll give you $10,000 for them, and I'll donate them right back to you. Very good. Good deal. All right. Well, thank you again. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Doug's project, head over to rangerdoug.com. There you'll not only see what's between the covers of this hardbound book, but be able to purchase a copy for yourself. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.